0: Welcome to the WebWell podcast brought to you by Cascade Web Development. I'm one of your hosts, Simon, along with Ben, and we can't wait to dive into all things internet, tech, web development, and web design. We'll also be discussing how we balance work and life and exploring the fascinating world of internet innovation. So whether you're a tech enthusiast or just looking for some entertainment, join us on this exciting journey as we explore the ever-changing landscape of the web. Thanks for tuning in and let's get started. Welcome everyone to the WebWell podcast. This is episode two. I'm joined here with Ben. Super excited to have everyone join us uh, as we're feeling like seasoned veterans on this uh, show, right? Being the second time we've done this, um, but we're really excited. Ben, how are you feeling? <laughs> yeah feeling great just, on
1: this end ready to jump in
0: <laughs> just as you swig some water they can't like...
1: <laughs> yeah they can't see that we're all good uh yeah no excited to jump in though we're like I said we are uh, we're old pros at this so um thanks for uh bringing us all together here once again simon
0: yeah no i, I figured okay so the first part of our sessions or at least the beginning uh part of our our uh, podcast ends up going uh somewhat smoothly and and really just trying to talk about what we have done the last couple of weeks since it's been two weeks um and for all the listeners out there my goal is that i can keep this to a two-week uh interval so two episodes a month um if we can pick it up even more than that we will but otherwise we're going to aim at that and target first and last week or first and second week in in the month so uh just keep an eye on that don't forget to subscribe and follow Um, but yeah, so this is the part where we kind of check in to see what we've been doing. Um, I'll jump in first mainly because I'm trying to wake up (laughs) a couple of weeks ago. I sprained my rib, which apparently is worse than breaking it. So, uh, real stupid snowboard accident where I just wasn't paying attention, caught an edge, like, I don't know, 20 yards from the lift and just fell. It was real stupid. Uh, but in that split second, saw stars. And like looked around, no one saw me, uh, except for my wife and son who were laughing, cause I don't fall ever. Uh, but basically went down the hill wheezing and just pain and went to where no one could see me and laid down for a little bit and just suffered. But I've been, uh, I'm recovering, went to the chiropractor. He made it hurt really more that night. Um, but basically, yeah, I'm, I'm just working through this pain and hopefully get better.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I know a thing or two about falling on snow. I guess my only advice to you is um, the softer the snow, the easier the blow. Uh, but I've, I've, uh, I've done my fair share of falling on the hard stuff and at one point cracked four ribs and punctured a lung. Uh, didn't get Ooh. x-rayed for like four days and uh, fortunately navigated that all right. But uh, yeah, it doesn't hurt yeah. for less as we get a little bit older and more fragile.
0: Well, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, for all the listeners that don't know, so every Monday morning at 10, we have a, a team all together kind of meeting on Zoom. And uh I had mentioned that as a review of my weekend and in both you, I remember you saying that and Stefan were just like, go to the doctor right now. Like we know people that have like died from it. And I was like, oh man, got me all worried. So I had to call and get my appointment scheduled pretty quick because I was all concerned. And started feeling like new pains, even though they're just in my head. Probably, <laughs> Yeah. Uh So i well, glad uh, you got checked out, Simon. Yeah, me too. Just to have him tell me there's nothing I can do. Uh, <laughs> uh, tell me over the last couple of weeks, what have, what have you been up to, Ben?
1: Well, I think the highlight for me is I just wrapped up season 27 of ski coaching. Um, and then a couple of days later uh, to accelerate that transition, headed back to the Wallawa Mountains, um, entered um, out of Union, Oregon, and uh, spent five days and four nights backcountry skiing with some of my closest ski buddies uh, dating back to the, the mid-80s. Uh, two close friends, Tyler and David, that I, I grew up ski, ra- ski racing with, uh, as well as uh, a number of other uh, good friends that, that I've met along the way, including a, a good friend, Tyler's, that flew up from the Bay Area with him. Um, so yeah, we spent one night in a yurt and the comforts of, uh, of that environment. And then we threw on the heavy packs and, and crawled over the mountains into the deeper uh, little zone in the range and set up a camp there with, uh, with one large teepee tent that we used to kind of hang out in had a a titanium wood stove to keep us all warm. And then at, at night we'd retreat into what are called mega mids, which are super lightweight, uh, single wall tents, little micro teepees, um, that, uh, each, there were two of us in each of those and, um, and slept in those, in that environment for three days and and skied for four days out there and lots of lines that guides had never, never skied before. And, um, yeah, it was phenomenal. I, I've been doing that since 2010 with the same guides. And so seeing oh, right. that relationship evolve has been incredible. Um, sharing that with a variety of friends, we've always got kind of a bit of a core, but then, you know, a couple rotate in and out for whatever reason each year and this year was interesting in that we got a bunch of snow in the front end of the week. And so we had to kind of ease into the terrain carefully cause there was some snow stability issues, a variety of natural slides, both, um, wet, loose, wet, dry, uh, excuse me, dry, loose, um, that were, were revealed on the mountains. So we couldn't get into some of the upper Alpine terrain that we wanted to, um, as well as some sun crests. So we had to kind of sniff out the pow and they did an amazing job and we got lots of really good skiing and just time walking in the mountains each day.
0: When you say those, uh, little two man single walled or whatever tents, are you digging into the snow for those are you are you building little platforms and you do the low section so cold air goes down into that is that what you're doing like not a cave but just on the snow yeah yeah
1: i know it's a good question because they they do come down at an angle on the ground you end up digging um down lower so that when you wake up in the night you're not like face up against condensed moisture on that single wall um so yeah we're probably digging down about two feet We've got a little bench on either side, a kind of a central, um, a central countertop, if you will, that forms the base that the uh, the pole uh, sticks up from. The single pole, in this case, we just chopped down some some dead old trees, but a lot of times you just use a ski pole, extend it out, and then you pull it tight on either end. But the trick is that the 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 part you dig down is sort of inside the outer area of the of the mega mid material so that you can then kind of cover up around it. So when this when the wind picks up, it's not blowing in the tent so much, um, but, but kind of up and over. Oh, wow. So it's, uh, not the most comfortable environment by any stretch, even with a, a, zero degree sleeping bag, an air mattress and a foam mattress, but, um, man, getting into that terrain and not seeing another soul for, you know, four or five days is pretty special.
0: Yeah, and, and snuggling up with uh, with another dude in one of those tents just trying to stay warm. All of this you're carrying, right? Like each of you are just carrying a bag, your pack, like, and that's it, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, the, but the good news is, is that we just have to carry it from the starting point, which in this case was their base camp with the yurt, and um, carrying it up and over about 2,000 feet of, of vertical feet. and and that's that's not optimal, but it's you know it's about four miles and two thousand feet, and then we unload all of that weight—the sleeping bag, the food, the fuel—and um, and then from there on, we're, we're traveling with much lighter packs throughout the day uh, for that those three days. That in co- in contrast to when we traversed the range back in twenty twenty one, and in that case, each day starts by breaking down camp loading it all in your backpack, usually 30 to 35 pounds, um, moving to the next spot that later that day, and then as the sun sets and it gets really cold really fast, mm-hmm. uh, you're rapidly digging out, digging out your, your uh, tent spot and then uh, huddling around a fire and trying to stay warm before retreating for the night. So that was a little bit more of a rugged experience, but yeah, it's all pretty magical being out there in the Willamette Mountain Range.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I've, I've done a few trips, uh, a lot of camping over the years in, in a couple different countries and stuff. And one of the things I always notice is it's different than like uh, RV or tent camping where you're like with supplies and all that, because you'll stay up maybe till 10, maybe 11, like around the campfire, telling stories, drinking beer or whatever. Uh, but when you're out there and heat starts to just like drop, temps drop. Uh, your little fire, you maybe are limited on wood, maybe supplies, and it's not that big. So it's just like, it's the thought that it's warm. Uh, do you find yourself like looking <laughs> at your clock, your watch when you're in bed, you're like, it's six 30, like screw it. I'm in bed, you know? Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent hundred percent. I was pretty ill equipped in twenty twenty one. I'm getting better at this whole winter camping thing. But um yeah, now we've got better equipment, but learned a lot of tricks and going to bed early is definitely one of the best ones. That and uh heating up a uh water and putting that in an algine and sleeping with the hot water uh mm-hmm. along with also like hand warmers, your typical hand warmers, uh throwing those in your pocket, all those are are really great tricks that uh sometimes are, are learned the hard way after a couple of really, really cold nights out.
0: Yeah, not that this is totally comparable, but I used to, uh, like up at Schweitzer where you used to ski as well, uh, Schweitzer over there. Um, I used to sleep in the back of my truck, uh, up there. So we'd ski one day, sleep in the bed of the truck, which just, you know, had a canopy, right? It's not out air open, but yep. it's cold. Yep. Uh, first, first night I realized my mistake was that I left my, my pants outside of my sleeping bags when i got up they were like a brand new pair of car hearts you know when they're like just stiff right i couldn't even move my Crisp. pants so i was like all right night two they went in and at the foot i just put them in my sleeping bag they were so much easier to put on yep. and warmer uh yep. yeah lesson learned for yeah. sure <laughs> nice
1: well let's yeah, uh that and when you're out there Oh, I was going to say, just closing comment on that is when you're out there moving through the mountains, uh, you have to sleep with your boot liners in your sleeping bag as well. Otherwise, same situation, you wake up and it's just, it's just an ice block. And so um, in this case, we did have the guide tent, which had the, the stove. So we just hung them high in there and let them dry all night. But yeah, when you're out there, you know, changing, changing camp each day, you end up sleeping with that in your tent. So it's, yeah, it's not for everybody but it's uh, yeah, he- <laughs> pretty pretty magical out there if you can endure some of that.
0: Imagine the smell in that sleeping bag intense afterwards is is ripe. <laughs> nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm well, told.
0: Let's kick off uh let's kick off with today's topic um which admittedly is is semi foreign to me. Um everyone that's joining in, uh I had to uh, kind of go at it new. Uh I did a lot of research and, and talked about it. Uh, with ben behind the scenes um really just because i wanted to learn more uh so this session uh just our our, our disclaimer we are not financial experts uh we are not your financial advisors uh simon definitely is not here <laughs> uh who you should go to uh ben is not however I think we we both have some unique perspective and experience uh when it comes to today's topic um most specifically so uh most specifically in tech banking and what i call the vc mattress right so it's uh where you put your money uh under a mattress which would probably be safer than what recently happened in the news um with silicon valley bank so um why don't we just start off what what happened what's kind of the big synopsis recently in the news for, for tech banking Ben,
1: Yeah. So uh, I like you um, am not a, a banking expert. I've, Uh, we've all been lucky here at cascade to have christy running the show from uh you know the controller seat over the last 17 years um but i have been able to benefit from some excellent information from some um resources that i have including the portland seed fund as well as uh, eo uh, which is short for entrepreneur organization so i received some some good material from both of those and i was going to share some high points this is definitely targeted at, at a higher level you know, kind of operator perspective uh, to try and just sort of distill down in, in um, layman terms what exactly went down and, and, you know, what we can learn from this. So uh, definitely want to um, add that caveat. And, and of course, we're always looking for feedback and ideas and, and you know, who might even want to come on and help us go deeper on the subject. But, you know, fundamentally, what uh, my understanding is this is essentially a, a crisis of confidence And caused by a wildfire spread by a few venture capitalists advising their portfolio companies to withdraw money. Um, So plain and simple, it was a bank run. And um, it's interesting because Silicon Valley Bank or SVB had bonds that had declined in value, but the underlying securities themselves uh, remained sound. So... um, so, you know, they had this this huge amount of exposure due also to the the, the number of tech company um, dollars that have been deposited since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And essentially, they, they was, that resulted in a liquidity problem, not due to underlining uh, assets or deposits, but due to the exposure to venture capital-backed companies and rising interest rates causing bond prices to drop. So... Um, that, that's sort of a, in a very high level nutshell, kind of how things transpired. Um, so from there, I think a key point to, to mention is that banks failed due to a lack of capital. And, and so as we look back in the last several weeks, the first bank that went down was Silvergate. Uh, it, was, uh, it was highly crypto focused and obviously cryptocurrency is, is very volatile. Um, the next one that we're all talking about here is Silicon Valley Bank. Um, You know, high concentration in startup technology, Uh, 40% of their assets were in investments, and too many of the the long-term plays uh, were from low-interest rate investments. Uh, And as the rates changed so much as a result of of increasing interest rates by the Fed, uh, the bonds were kicking out lower rates. Um, and then ultimately their equity, uh, to debt ratio got below 5%. And that's kind of the threshold for the FDIC. Another interesting thing about Silicon Valley bank is that 90% of the deposits were uninsured, which means there were more than, there was more than $250,000 in those, those, each of those accounts. So, um, you know, these are a lot of high net worth organizations and in some case individuals, and then. Signature Bank was the, the, the most recent, I guess the, the one after Signature, uh, or excuse me, Silicon Valley Bank. And, and what they found was the long-term assets were under duress. Fast growth, lots of crypto, and then long-term uh, SBA lending program. So, so those are the some of the the high level details. And, and Simon, I think you'd you'd identified there were some, you know, like who is this impacting? Maybe you want to talk to us a little bit about some of the research you had done, and and identify who some of those those organizations were that that we may or may not be familiar with.
0: Yeah. So one of the things uh, that I noticed, Ben, and really I'm going to answer your question, but also. When I Googled this, when I searched it, I saw the news reports just out of curiosity. So we're talking about over 90% of, of the bank assets, the, the cash that was in there was over what the FDIC insures up to $250,000. Who are the people standing in line when they were doing the run on bank? Like we're talking about people that potentially have money over $250,000 and they're standing in line outside Monday morning. I want to know who those people are, Right. Like, are they actually like going in to pull out their millions in cash? Are they going out to get it transferred? Like they're sitting there knocking on the door. Are they opening? When are they opening? You know, like, what about my millions? I just want to be friends with those people. Maybe like, (laughs) there you go.
1: Yeah. I just want to follow behind them and see what falls out of their pockets. I'm sure I'd be uh, in a great position if I did that.
0: Yeah. So uh, speaking, well, (laughs) go ahead.
1: I and, and interestingly enough technology is one of the biggest issues that led to this is that technology allowed for communication to accelerate for these these limited number of, of vc firms to get this message out to their their um funded portfolio companies and to have them move that swiftly to to make this bank run go so quick i think it was like four hours and and the whole wow. thing collapsed and so interesting how technology helped create this problem yet People then reverted to the old analog. I'm going to go stand in line around the corner at the bank and see if I can withdraw my bags of cash. Like, I mean, the the the, the irony in that is is pretty wild.
0: Yeah. So again, speaking of companies, so I I did some search uh, and just figure out which companies were impacted most by this. And when we start talking about these numbers here, it, they're numbers that I just can't fathom fully. Um, so Roku. Right. I have a Roku TV in the garage. I think we have one in our camper. Like, um, so apparently the company had a total cash and cash equivalent of approximately 1.9 million as of March 10 this year. Approximately 480 million was held in SVB. Right. So 480 million. That's 26% of the company's cash or cash equivalent as of that date. So approximately, uh, let's see, 1.4 billion billion of the company's cash equivalent was distributed against, uh, across multiple financial institutions, right? So other organizations, roadblocks, um, Roblox, uh, I know my son knows better than I do, uh, 3 billion in cash and securities balance as of February 28 of this year, approximately 5%, uh, is held in Silicon Valley bank, which was one point, or excuse me, 150 million, uh, in there. So one of the statements that I keep seeing in here is basically that it's not going to affect day-to-day, that $150 million gone right now and having to be sorted out doesn't affect their day-to-day. So big business, right? Um, Let's see, we'll go down here. Rocket Lab USA, another one that I I somehow recognize, approximately 38 million, uh, which is approximately 7.9% of the total cash uh and securities by that company as of december 31st and the end of last year um scrolling down quantum scape um let's see sofi tech uh sofi that's a big company i recognize that name um yeah they they didn't even tell us how much was in there actually no the company has approximately 40 million dollar lending facility that was provided through Silicon Valley bank, which is unaffected apparently, uh, by the FDIC receivership from that bank. So we're talking about big dollars, obviously. Right. Yeah. What about those under 250,000? Uh,
1: in terms of organizations. Yeah. I, I can imagine if I was the CFO and the CEO of of an organization, you know that would be um, pretty frightening. Um, to, uh, assuming that 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 under two hundred fifty thousand dollars represented a significant amount of the of the cash for that organization, I mean this happened, you know, mid month, so a lot of people are trying to make payroll. Uh, they're they're really trying to, um, you know. Uh, conduct business with these banks and then this news comes and and starts to to really have a, a serious impact on things. So, you know, depending on whether or not they've distributed funds across multiple banks, they may or may not have been in a position to respond to that. And I can imagine that was a pretty excruciating, you know, 48 hours over that weekend before things mm-hmm. started to clear up. And And it seemed like things got moving pretty well with a lot of, of government assistance come Monday to, to help, you know, address uh, this exposure and, and these challenges. Uh, I, another thing I've heard for sure is gosh, $250,000, given the amount of inflation we've seen and how long that threshold has remained flat, it's probably time for that number to, to change and to increase dramatically. Um, because gosh, it doesn't take very long as an organization that you're going to need to have more than $250,000 safeguarded in a bank, um, and not have to worry about a disruption like this, uh, you know, as, as you scale. And so, you know, I, I, that, it's a great question and I think it all depends on how well diversified these organizations were um, if they were exposed to some of these impacts with, with these limited number of mid-sized banks that are, are, um,
0: are being exposed to this. So what does this mean for other tech startups that, that maybe have money in other banks? What do you think they're doing or did Monday morning, Tuesday morning um, with all this news? You know, it's a
1: great question. I imagine they were making phone calls to their banks. Um, they were, you know, probably making, certainly trying to get information as much as they could from their own CFOs and other advisors if they were, you know, dealing with other people's money in the way of angel funds or or um, um, venture capital funds, probably trying to seek counsel from them. But you know, my hunch is they were looking at a couple of different avenues. One of uh, is, is making sure they're not over leveraged in any one bank, or I shouldn't say leveraged, but invested in any one bank. The other tool that's out there that I learned a little bit about is that there are some of these um, opportunities where you can purchase insurance to cover funds over that $250,000. So yeah, the FDIC is going to cover that first quarter million, but beyond that, a lot of banks have these, these uh, vehicles that you can, you know, for, Fairly reasonable amount of money, you can purchase insurance um, that that greater protects your your cash balances. And as with all things, you know, the more you have, the 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 easier it is in many cases to get access to that stuff. And so, you know, we've even got. Um, some relationships with uh, financial providers that um, allow us protection up to a million dollars in an account, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, again, that's FDIC covers that, that first 250 K and then um, through fee structures, uh, whether they're, they're obvious or not um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's additional coverage above and beyond that. So you can feel more comfortable. Uh, But I think it does highlight that it's one more thing that organizations need to really be keenly aware of that perhaps they, you know, had this growing, you know, amount of confidence over the last, you know, decade and a half that, oh, you know, that's not going to be a problem. Uh, and, and in many cases, I think it might help too, if I were to jump through and kind of talk about the, the why behind this sort of, how did this happen? And, and was this, you know, at all tied to what we saw with the the great recession, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the late aughts. Um, and so that, that was some eye-opening experience I'd love to share here as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, so. Yeah, so jumping in on that, I, I think this a lot of this we can date back to the PPP stimulus. So essentially, what happened with PPP is it was the it was the equivalent of applying gas, you know, gas to the the, the economy, right? So assets grew dramatically as as the federal government infused a bunch of cash into the system to organizations, uh, as well as to individuals. And um, so the problems weren't credit based, but they were long term asset related. Uh, which constrains institutions. So here mm-hmm. we are, bumping along in 2020. We have this this big scare. A lot of things get shut down, delayed, stalled. The government's like, we're going to throw a lot of money in here to keep the economy running, and and that was great. But um, you know, then all of a sudden, we see in the last year a whole bunch of inflation, and that's one of these few tools the Fed has to address this inflation. Um, uh, issue that that surfaced as a result of all of that accelerated economic activity, and so inflation is intended to lower production, um, increase the the um, the cost of money of borrowing, and we've seen that. In fact, the the Fed's raised rates again today a quarter point, and and that's I just read an interesting article about that where they were saying basically it's this balance between managing against inflation, which still is creeping up but also not trying to destabilize the banking industry further than it already is. Um, but you know, when you, when you do uh, increase those rates, that's the equivalent of slamming on the brakes for the economy. And so you've got these opposing forces from, that started with the PPP stimulus, and now you've got the impacts of inflation. All of this accelerated again by technology, and, uh, and we're seeing that you know, some, some banks that had exposure that they couldn't manage against uh, are failing. And, and it's interesting because these these issues, you know, back in the Great Recession, they were they were um, issues with uh, credit risk. Right. And that there were investments that, that weren't um, protected. And in this case, it's not about credit risk. Uh, because a lot of these issues were were the result of of these government backed the government backed bonds that you know had these interest rates that are are now being impacted by inflation. So it's a matter of timing with interest rate chart uh, changes. It's not a, an issue of, of credit risk. So it's just this new uh, soup of problems and and some new issues that banks are having to manage against, and and therefore their customers.
0: So this really does affect um, access to money as well as what i'm hearing right
1: yeah yeah certainly is is um is impacting that cuz yeah if uh you know it seems like every everything in many cases the the um, the money's there um it's not that the 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 um it's just that they've got they've got a whole lot more in the way of of liabilities and so if everyone's coming in trying to get their money at once especially in these cases where you know, the, the, uh, the assets to, to are only represent 5% or less Then there's just, there's just less than the way of money for, for people to get to. And that's when the FDI steps in, mm-hmm. F, excuse me, FDIC steps in and says, Hey, we're going to have to help you manage through this. But as an example, one of the banks that, that provided some of this information uh via EO, they, they hold their, their assets at 12.5%. So that's, you know, what two and a half times what the FDIC requires before they step in, and so I think taking some more conservative approaches uh, can be very helpful. But obviously, if you're holding on to that additional, you know, one and a half times or seven and a half percent of, of investable money, that's leaving money on the table as a bank, and and that's that can be a, a tough move to make if they're really trying to grow. Um, but obviously, creating you know, taking a little bit more of a conservative approach can really look genius in moments like this.
0: Yeah. So let's get back to one of the, the acronyms you just said, EO, uh, we need to explain what that is, but first, uh, I read a quote from CNN, uh, an article they wrote last week, uh, and they said this, um, that, that basically they highlight the SBC SVB. I V B I can't even say that right S V B, uh, Cyclone Valley bank had very heavy exposure to the tech industry, which has particularly been hit hard by the raising interest rates. So my question to you is why why is it that tech was hit hard by interest rates like why specifically
1: well i think um you know a lot of these tech companies especially software as a service companies they they require a lot of money to operate and you know um you know back in 2008 when we hatched brand live and then we spun that out in, in 2012 2013. Uh, we quickly learned that you know you to, in order to grow you 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 lose money. It, it costs more money to grow than um, than you know the the growth provides. And so you're kind of constantly trying to show enough growth to get access to more funding, so you can show more growth, so you can get access to more funding, and <laughs> then you hope to kind of like shoot the moon and have someone decide to acquire you before. You know, the economy slows down like this and, and all of a sudden your ability to, to raise more funds is compromised. So in a nutshell, that's my understanding of it is that a lot of these tech companies just require so much money to grow. And and when they can't as easily find investment as we're seeing with a lot of companies, the, the investment uh, community is, is not as inclined to lend money uh, and the cost of money is higher. Then all of a sudden they're looking around and getting a little bit more desperate. Um, mm. so you know, we've seen that with a couple of our clients that are in the funded startup technology startup space in the last year really have to face some tough challenges because they were kind of going along and burning money like crazy because that's why the investors give it to you, not to hold on to it, but to spend it and grow. Yeah. And then yeah. all of a sudden some factors outside of their control shift, they're going back out to market trying to find money and they're looking at it going, man. People are less inclined to, to uh, loan us money and or the cost of money is so prohibitive that it, it doesn't make sense to, um, to take on some of that, what you might call harder money uh, that is, is, you know, has um, ultimately it just has uh, the uh, access to it is, is much less um, friendly. And then, you know, the ramifications of not paying back on time get a lot less friendly as well.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned software as a service. So there is that as being an asset, right? The intellectual properties to patented, you know, technology pieces. Uh, but it's a little different, obviously, than like real estate, right? Because you still have that hard asset of a building or property or land. So finding loan, finding money for it, it's easier because they can go and collect from you. But I think in tech, right, is you have less of that. You have fewer of that. You don't have a fleet of vehicles, you don't have, um, a bunch of restaurant buildings that are that are taking up space in downtown Portland, Seattle, Spokane area, right? So uh, that may also be part of that difference. Why tech is is a little different that way, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: It's it's less tangible, it's less real. Um, you know, a lot of that is goodwill, it is I, intellectual property or IP, and uh, you know that takes that takes confidence, that takes trust, and it's not something like you said where if you know it can go from. From a massive valuation to literally zero because it's code, you know it's ether in many cases. and you know, if people lose trust in that, it's gone versus you know something hard and tangible like real estate like you know hard assets in the form of vehicles mm. and and the like. Um, at least there's something that you know a, um, an investor could hope to recover
0: of their original investment. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, as far as cascade? How does this affect uh us why why not um what are the areas that that you kind of look out for for us
1: yeah well you know a lot of credit goes to, to christy our controller in that it doesn't immediately impact us uh, we're not working with these mid-sized banks that are are um, showing this vulnerability we work with you know mm-hmm. some of the big four banks and um you know, essentially, we work really hard to avoid these uh, these balances that are in excess of the insured amounts as well. So that's something that we we have kept an eye on, fortunately. But also, fortunately, we're not we're not with these riskier institutions that have shown weakness in this time. Um, now, obviously, there could be a, a larger ripple effect that could impact some larger banks like we operate with, but but for now, we we seem to have dodged that bullet. And and you know, there were a couple of those accounts where where we needed to move some funds around. And this was a a heck of a wake-up call, fortunately not uh, resulting in a lot of lost sleep immediately, but making sure that, hey, we're we're playing by those rules and we're doing everything we can to protect our clients and our our team
0: and and ultimately the organization. So this is a little off our notes. I I don't think I'll throw you under the bus with this question, but um, is this, uh, as I hear uh, words that start with R, recession, uh, coming up with stuff like that, Uh, Looking at this year, um, is this potentially just like the Turkey little indicator that it's done? Is this, this is actually a good thing. Um, I just know since, since the great depression, since the crash uh, in, in what was it? 2008, right. Um, That this is maybe actually a healthy thing that maybe it is like you're saying uh, a chance for everyone to reanalyze where their money is to, to kind of secure uh, their positioning. Um, do you think that's the case with this?
1: You know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know enough about this space. I think it's getting a little bit above my pay grade with that question, but I, <laughs> uh, you know, in that article that I was reading, um, I think it was the um, the Washington Post um, just before this call, they were talking about the concern with that interest rate hike that happened today by the Fed. You know, if that, Further slows down the economy, then we could be moving into that recessionary phase. Mm. And and some people were being critical of of you know the Fed saying, "Hey, everything was leveling out. We didn't need to do that." And you know, with this some of the the situations in the banking industry right now, maybe that wasn't the right call. So, um, mm. but I think it, yeah, it's it's definitely one of those times where you know having <laughs> having some cash on hand, not requiring a lot of Of uh, outside financing is probably the safest place to be right now, and and certainly having confidence that your cash is in a safe place, so that should the economy continue to slow, uh, you're in a position to weather that storm. I think that's we're definitely we've been giving giving a lot of attention to you know those types of concerns over the last
0: several years, and, and certainly in the last several weeks. So I guess uh, to round this out, just with one of the final last questions, and again, we're not financial advisors. We're not pros at this. We're just giving uh, kind of our, our opinion and our look at this after kind of doing some research and from our experience. Um, what do you think you would suggest to any, any startup, any uh, organization that's just working with a VC? Um, what would you suggest for them to operate uh, with a VC that way?
1: Yeah, well, I'll tell you. Um, maybe for a little context, um, you know, again, Brand Live is a company that that we hatched here in Cascade, and then we spun it out and uh, raised money multiple times before, um, you know, before exiting that organization uh, at the end of twenty. Well, I should say the beginning of twenty twenty. Um, and and what we learned through that is that oftentimes these venture capital funds. Uh, these, these investment funds and, and angel, you know, angel funds, they all have partnerships with these banks and those banks work really hard to, uh, to be appealing to the fund and, and all of the, um, you know, all of the, the portfolio companies within them. And so we received a fair amount of pressure when we were going through that kind of, uh, program and system with these, these, um, VC funds and, 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 and capital funds. And, you know, at that time, uh, our controller again was Christie and she said, no, we're good. We're in a good spot. So while she was in control of that, she said, Hey, we're going to, we're going to go with what we know. We're going to stay with, you know, one of the big four banks and, and, uh, that's good enough for our needs right now. Um, in terms of advice I would give to others is, you know, ultimately follow the money. Um, you know, just get a sense of, of, you know, why, uh, a, a certain, uh, venture capital uh, organization or, or, fund is pushing the other, or, you know, the, a specific bank, you know, what's, what's in it for the fund and, and then what's in it for you and what kind of exposure is acceptable to, to your business to, you know, work with that bank versus any other kind of bank. Um, so yeah, we, we did receive a lot of pressure, and, and ultimately made the decision not to. I don't know; uh, I, I have no idea what Brand Live, um, what their banking situation is currently. It's none of my business, but um, I just know uh, before when we were working with you know uh, more, you know, larger. Uh, banks with with um, largely distributed uh, portfolios and and banking practices that 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 served us well then and it continues to serve us well I'm sure there's you know we missed some opportunities by not jumping in Mm -hmm. with that um, you know with with Silicon Valley at the time or or some of these other banks that are sponsors but yeah I think like anything in this day and age chase the money down get a sense of of where motivations are and make sure that they align with what you're trying to accomplish as ultimately as a customer.
0: Wow yeah that's (laughs) <laughs> That's kind of common sense, or, or just basic good advice and a reminder, probably for some of those out there. Huh. Well, uh, I think it's a good spot to end it there. Um, again, this topic was was different for me because it's it's very high level. It's it's the money stuff, right? So. Um, as we talk uh, to our audience and for our audience as we think about topics uh, I know that you and I were kind of like what would this appeal to who would this appeal to and and quite frankly I think um, you being business owner me being employee we talked about employee employer um I feel like in tech world those that that kind of have their ears perked and are listening to, you know financial uh, the the environment around them i feel like that topic should be uh, relevant for everyone right yeah and yeah and it's really interesting
1: to think about how you know what a what a business owner um should should share and, and present to members of his team. And I, I think, you know, fortunately we're in a position where uh, we do our best to be as transparent as possible. Um, and I'm, I'm very comfortable saying to our team that, you know, fortunately this is not one that bit us and, and much like we like to share with our clients that when there's widespread, you know, uh, uh, you know, like malware issues and viruses and bugs, uh, we've been able to avoid a lot of those things and sometimes being a little bit smaller, maybe taking um, some more conservative approaches around security. Uh, and in this case, banking uh, can really pay off versus, you know, kind of full throttle risk profile in, in all areas of the business. Uh, obviously, that can create some exciting growth, but it can also create volatility. So, um, yeah, I, I would certainly be curious to know what some of these institutions are sharing with their employees mm-hmm. and and where they just decide to kind of keep their head in the sand. And, uh, it's just, yeah, another example over the 25 years I've been doing this, where fortunately we can, we can report stability and, and safety to our, our team. And that's a really comfortable place to be.
0: Yeah. And, and from the employee perspective, I think, uh, all of us that, um, have always taken pride in what we do and taken ownership in what we do. There's a certain amount of that transparency that we really appreciate, right. As an employee, I, I kind of want to know those things. However, there's some things that I'm just straight up. Nope. I don't want to know, you manage that, I'm good, I'm, I'm trusting, right? But I think there is that balance of like you sharing that with me or, or leadership in other organizations sharing it with their team. And granted, obviously, it's, it's a level-based kind of knowledge where management directors, C-suite may know more, obviously, they need to potentially know more. Uh, but I think having that kind of transparency with, with that situation, I think just helps a lot of people give more buy-in and more trust that when leadership is telling them something, I think it's, it's just easier to swallow, you know? So, well, I, uh, I appreciate it. I'll say that, uh, I've always been part of that. So, um, yeah, I think that rounds out our, our topic today. Um, just as a reminder for everyone that is listening, um, we'd love to hear your comments, questions. Um, we did set up an email. I mentioned that last uh last podcast. Uh Stefan took care of that like the following day. So email, questions, comments, anything you want us to uh to highlight, or or if you even want to be on the show with us, um, uh, email us at webwell at cascadewebdev.com. So again, that's webwell at cascadewebdev.com. Uh and don't forget to give us a follow. Um and a like, and, and all those things that people say at the end of podcasts. So, uh, definitely appreciate all you listeners. Uh, Ben, thanks again for sharing, um, next podcast, just a a quick little teaser. Um, Stefan's going to be joining us, uh, and we're going to talk about, um, machines. We're going to talk about machines that can respond, uh, also known as AI. So, uh, stay tuned for that. I look forward to it. Awesome. Thank you, Simon. Look forward to talking to everyone soon.